So we're in the third week of this sermon series called Give Thanks, and um, it seemed kind of cliche as I was putting together the calendar and I was thinking about what we were going to be talking about in November, because it would be cliche to talk about, about giving thanks because we're coming up in, and had just come up into Thanksgiving. But I realized, you know, that, that I think that's worth leaning into. And, and the more I thought about it is that the, be, the better it is to talk about because the idea of giving thanks is so often tied to things like our blessings, the things that we are so thankful for that have been given to us, the blessings we have. But as we look at scripture, we find something different. What we find is that being thankful isn't just about our blessings, like we're so often encouraged to focus on. Like giving thanks is believing that despite what is going on around us or the big things that are happening to us, we should have a disposition of thankfulness. I talked about this in the first week, and I said that everybody in our lives, everybody has something big going on in their life. And that can be a positive experience that you're having in life. That can be a negative reality that is happening to you but we all have something big going on and we truly learn to be thankful. We're not just thankful in those times of blessing. We're not just thankful when the big thing going on is a good thing in our lives, but we learn to be thankful amid all circumstances when everything big going on is both good and seems to be bad. We learn to have a dispositional thankfulness and this is what we've learned over these past two weeks. Now, in the first week of our sermon series, we looked at a passage from a letter that was written to a church that was experiencing persecution. So you can imagine the big thing going on for this church experiencing persecution was a bad thing, a bad experience taking place. This letter that was found in the New Testament uh, was written by the Apostle Paul. Paul had started this church. He knew about the persecution they were experiencing, and he wrote these words as a way to encourage them. He said, rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. Rejoice and pray and give thanks no matter what is going on, no matter the big thing that is going on in life, including this persecution that they are facing. He says, rejoice pray and give thanks. And he tags it. And he says, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, to be thankful, to pray continually, and to rejoice always. Now, as Paul wrote to these suffering people, he laid out a path, a path for a mindset, not just about how they should feel, but how they should act amid their circumstances. And Paul teaches a lesson to us as well. Rejoice and pray and give thanks in all things. And Paul's advice came from a place of his own experience. Paul, because of his faith, was jailed. He was beaten up, but he persevered because his belief that God was with him despite the circumstances that he had been experiencing. Paul says, regardless of the circumstances, we should be thankful because regardless of our experiences, we know that God is with us and God is for us. Paul is saying, listen, I know 
that God is with us, God is for us, despite the experiences that we face. And Paul shared this belief in another letter that he wrote in Romans 8, 28. It says this, he says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So we give thanks because God is with us and for us in all circumstances, but because God is also working for our good. And we know this because that is at the heart of who we know God to be. Now there's a saying, it kind of feels maybe a bit dated right now, but it's, it's meaningful in its own way. And to articulate it, it says this, God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. And it sounds dated, it sounds cliche, it sounds old-fashioned, but there's something about that saying, God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. And that is what Paul is getting at in this passage. This truth is found in the central passage that we've been reading during this series. So these, these things begin to come together. We see this in Psalm 136. This is the central theme of this Give Thanks series, and these words are, Give thanks to the Lord. For he is good. His love endures forever. So then last week, during the second week of the series, we looked closer at this passage. We saw how it answers the question that comes when we read this passage. Give thanks to the Lord. And the, the question should always be, well, why? Why? Was the author trying to teach us? Why should we give thanks to the Lord? And he answers that question right there in the passage. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. But if you've learned anything about me, if you've learned anything from being around our church, you know that we continue to ask questions, that questions lead to more questions, that we take the cube, we turn it, we look at it different ways. And so we, we say, give thanks to the Lord. Well, why? Well, because he is good. But what does it mean to be good? As I said last week, my wife's cookies are really, they're really good. Uh, actually, anything she makes seems to be really, really good. Um, LeBron James. Look, you might not like LeBron James, but man, he is good. But what we find here is a different kind of good. I said last week, it's different than Cookie's good. It's different than LeBron James' good. It's different than the kind of good that we see. But what, what is that different kind of good? So we took a deeper look. And we discovered that the word for good is the Hebrew word tov. We found that this word is first used in the book of Genesis in the creation poem. And in that poem, we find and found that tov is a kind of goodness with so much more nuance than what we normally mean when we say something is good. It goes beyond our categories of good. So when it says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, it's not talking about cookies good. It's not talking about LeBron James good. It's not talking about the U.S. men's national team in the World Cup good. It's not talking about that kind of good. It's, it's pointing us to a different category of good, and honestly, for a kind of good that we don't have a lot of words for, which is why it's so important to explore this. Because what we find within the text is that there is a different kind of good, a different level of good, and tov is this whole different level of good that creates more good. It's a perpetual motion of good. It's tied into creation, and it's tied into creation because it's the idea of giving life, bringing life, and life without end. This goodness 
is a perpetuating kind of goodness. This goodness is tied into those things that we say when we say the prayer on earth as it is in heaven. We're saying we want the goodness of heaven into this world today. We want mercy that brings more mercy. We want love that brings more love. We want the kind of goodness that brings more goodness and peace into our world. See, that is what good looks like. When you look around, you say, I want to see good. It's the kind of good, the mercy, the love, the compassion that compels others into further mercy, love, and compassion. And we see that at the heart of who God is. God took the formless, he took the empty, the desolate, and the dark, and he created life and flourishing. And he sat back and rested because he had created this self-perpetuating reality of goodness. And he called it very good. And so when we participate in that, when we bring joy and life and love into the world around us that creates more joy and life and love and mercy and goodness, we are participating in the tove goodness of God that brings more of that into this world. That's what we should be striving for. That's what we should be driving for. That's the kind of people we should be, the kind of church that we should be. A tove kind of church that wants that kind of goodness in this world, this perpetuating type of goodness. Now to come back to our series, this is why no matter our circumstances, we can give thanks. Because what is good isn't found. Do you see this now? It's not just found in our blessing. And it's not extinguished by our circumstances. This goodness is rooted in the goodness of God who walks with us in all things, bringing light to darkness, flourishing in pain, life and death. And this is at the center of a theology of goodness. A theology of who God is. A theology that tells us that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. That amid all these circumstances, God is at work desiring to bring life within death. God is at work desiring to bring flourishing amid the pain of our experiences. God is at work bringing light to darkness. And as God works within us and through us, bringing that tove goodness within us, we then pour that out into this world. That is our call. That is who we are called and meant to be. So when we give, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, we also recognize our relationship with God and the reality that the goodness of God is not some separate reality, something f far off, untouchable from us, but is the incarnational reality of Jesus in this world walking hand in hand with us, bringing that goodness into our lives so that we then can bring that goodness into this world. This is the redemptive, this is the restorative reality of the goodness of God. So this brings us back to the passage then. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And now we come to that final clause. His love endures forever. Now his love endures 
forever gets repeated over and over and over again in this psalm. Let me read this to us. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, his love endures forever. Who by his understanding made the heavens, his love endures forever. Who spread out the earth upon the waters, his love endures forever. Who made the great lights, his love endures forever. The sun to govern the day, his love endures forever. The moon and the stars to govern the night, his love endures forever. Now, in these nine verses, we see that all of creation comes from the reality of who God is, his goodness, and his love. See, we have a theology here now for an understanding of God, defined by this goodness, this this type of goodness that we understand, and now by his love. So I want to explore this a little bit more today. His love endures forever. But what do we mean by his love? How do we define that? How do we understand this? Now, as we see in this passage, there's this idea that not even creation could be bigger than his love. Yet through it, we see his love. Now, the word for love is the Hebrew word hased. And this word means um, covenant love it means a covenant love a a mercy a, a a related kind of love but let's explore that a little bit more i want to explore this more fully because i want to see how this is used in other places in the psalms and how that comes back to this psalm that we just read and what that can mean for us today as we think about giving thanks as we think about living as thankful people and as we see that theology of giving thanks live out in our lives and into our world so i want to see how this is used in other places in the psalms and this psalm that we're going to turn to psalm 51 has this heading above it it says for the director of music a psalm of david when the prophet nathan came to him after david had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So we're going to come to this psalm, Psalm 51, that also uses this word for love. And in this psalm, we're, we're finding out that there's a little bit of a backstory here. That this psalm doesn't just sit within the psalm book, but it was created out of an experience, out of a reality, a psalm of David because of something that had taken place. So li- listen to this again. It says, a psalm of David. So David wrote this song. And it says the reason he wrote this song is when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery. So there is some stuff going on here. The story that we're talking about that it, ta- that it references here is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. The story tells us about David, who at the time is this powerful king. And David went through all sorts of effort to commit adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. Now, listen, this is so critical for us to see this. Due to cultural norms, due to David's position as a king, discussing consent here isn't even necessary. Let me be clear, this isn't a story about Bathsheba's sin. This is about David's sin. Because it was an egregious abuse of power. 
The story tells us that he sent palace aides to take her from her home, bring her back to him. This, this is an ugly story of David's sin. His lust, murder, deceit. But it's also a story about the confrontation of that sin. The importance of that confrontation. And what came out of a result of that confrontation. We find this in 2 Samuel chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. As we see with David, it's really easy to look around at everyone else and take that place of judgment. It's easy to see everyone else's sin and miss our own sin. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said, remove the log in your own eye before removing the speck in someone else's eye. If we look more carefully, we would see our own missteps. And sometimes we need this. Sometimes we need someone to bring up a mirror in front of us for us to see the own reality of some things that we've done. So Samuel, realizing that David needed someone to put a mirror in front of him, told David this story about this lamb. As David listened, he got angry at the rich man in the story. And then Samuel turned the story on David. It's such a powerful illustration. And it does such a great job at saying, listen, you're the man. It's you. It helped David realize that he was caught. His sin was exposed. And David entered a place of deep repentance. And like so many of us, we experience deep emotion like that. He turned to music. He turned to songs. And David, not just listening to someone else's words, listening to someone else's lyrics, listening to someone else's melody. Instead, David crafted his own. He wrote Psalm 51, and listen how that psalm begins. Now thinking about this story that is the backdrop to the psalm. David said, have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. The word for mercy comes from a word that has to do with the way that a mother treats a child. David, David is saying, God, Would you treat me like an innocent child? 
he, he knows that he doesn't deserve it, but, but he's appealing. He, he's appealing to something about God, who, who God is. He, he's appealing to this reality. He's saying, listen, listen, I know, I know that I'm not innocent, but, but would, would, you, would you treat me out of your kindness, out of your love? Would you, would you look at the way that a mother or a father looks at an innocent child? Would you look at me like that? He, he's not appealing to his own innocence. He's appealing to God's love. That somehow, despite David's sin, God would treat him differently than he deserves. He's not really even pointing then to himself as much as he's pointing to the mercy of God, but he's also pointing to a reality about himself, this unworthiness because of his sin. And a few verses later, so he doesn't just ignore it. He doesn't just say, God, treat me differently than I deserve because of who you are. He says, treat me differently than I deserve because of who you are in spite of what I've done. He's taking ownership for what he had done and he's asking God to treat him differently in spite of that. Listen to how he says it in Psalm 51. I mean, David is owning this. He says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, some people point to this verse and they defend the idea of original sin. What that means is that somehow we are born with a condition that sets us apart from God. That somehow every single one of us is born with this condition. But, but David is being poetic here. I don't think he's trying to create a theology about original sin. What I want us to see is that I think David is saying, my sin is so heavy, my sin is so big, that it outweighs the rest of my life. That, listen, listen, surely... The, the only way that this is a reality is I must have been sinful from the day I was born. That this is the reality of my life. All the good in my life seems nothing compared to this sin. Now that is what we call repentance. That is what we call admission of guilt. That, that is a reality of addressing what is at the heart of what's taking place here. But listen, I want you to hear this. As soon as David confesses this reality of the weight of his sin, he then appeals to the counterweight. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Surely my sin outweighs everything else in my life. So I appeal to your goodness and your love. Have mercy on me according to your unfailing love. What David is saying in this first verse as he begins to confess his sin and beg for God to forgive him and cleanse him is this simple truth. His sin could never outweigh the love of God. And it's this point that I want to land on today. Your sin, my sin, our sin can never outweigh the love of God. And it is his mercy 
And it is his love that leads us to the repentance of our sin. See, this is what David is saying. David is saying, your unfailing love outweighs all of this. And so for it, I am sorry. And I ask for your forgiveness. I ask for your mercy and your grace. He doesn't ignore all of this because of God's love. He takes ownership of it because of God's love. Because he knows that God's love outweighs all of it. And so he doesn't need to hold on to it any longer. He can be released from the weight of that sin because of the outweighing love of God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Now, Paul, back to the book of Romans, points to this idea. Listen to what he says. In chapter 2, verse 4, he said, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? And a few chapters later, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. David points to the unfailing love of God. Jesus, or David points to the goodness of God. He points to the mercy of God. And he gives those names. He says the mercy, the love, the goodness, the unfailing love of God. But we have a name for those words, and that name is Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying. He says the unfailing love of God is found in Christ Jesus. You don't have to look for any other metaphors. You don't have to look for any other pictures. You can look to Jesus. You can look to his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. And in that narrative, in that story, in that life is found the love of God. And he said, for all have sinned. Everybody has this weight. But it's, but it, but as David confesses, your sin and my sin and our sin can never outweigh the love of God. So while our sin may look different, we've all stood in David's shoes. If we're willing to look deeply, we all recognize the reality of the weight of our sin. But I don't want you to miss the invitation today that we find here. And that invitation is to experience the counterweight that we find in the grace and the mercy and the love of God. And that grace and that mercy and that love of God that is found in Jesus. Fall in redemption. Sin and grace. Mercy and unfailing love. 
fallen redemption, sin and grace, mercy and unfailing love. That's what Paul says. What David is saying. The theology of unfailing love that we find in God is that his mercy will always outweigh anything in our past, anything in our present, anything in our future. It outweighs any of that sin. And from that, we find freedom and victory in the love of Jesus. And I don't want you to miss that invitation today to say, I don't need all this stuff. I can release it. I can release myself from the guilt of this, from the temptation of this, because I can run into the welcoming, loving arms of Jesus. And listen, if that is true, if that's true of his love in mercy, if his unfailing love looks like that, in the face of awful sin, then it is true of his love at all times that through all things, through all things, we can say give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. If his unfailing love outweighs the reality of my sin, his unfailing love Love outweighs every circumstance that I can experience and anything that I will go through. His love outweighs anything that you will experience in this life. And will you allow that love to come into your life, to envelop you, to, to invite you, to welcome you into this journey with Jesus? Today, I encourage you wherever you are, whether you've been following Jesus for a long time, whether you're at the beginning of that path, or whether you are still standing in this place wondering if you're good enough, the answer is yes. He invites every single one of us to come and follow. So I want you to drop the weight of your sin today, drop the weight of your guilt, and come and follow Jesus, who is the very picture of this unfailing love. And say with me today, and say with me forever, from here on out, when we say these words, recognizing this as the reality of God, that I give thanks to the Lord. In all things, in all circumstances, whatever is going on around me, I give thanks thanks to the Lord for he is good in all things his goodness is a self-perpetuating motion of goodness that he wants to pour out of my life and pour out into this world give thanks to the Lord for he is good his love that outweighs any circumstances any sin endures forever give thanks to the Lord for he is good his love endures forever amen Let's pray. God, we thank you for this passage that we've looked at over these past few weeks. God, I pray that these words would have a freshness for us, that they would have 
just that they would just continue to speak to us in new ways. God, that we would, we would, we would wake up with these words on our lips. Whatever we're facing, whatever we face, whatever is coming up, God, may we be reminded, we can say, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. God, help us to be people who see that invitation through the life of Jesus. And as we follow Jesus, help us to be people of goodness and love and thankfulness. And it's your name that we pray today. Amen.